compare. In the past two years, we've been studying the Grot Harambam, the letters of Harambam. And he get it, a letter gives us unique insight into a certain amount of information. Yet at times, this information could be viewed as skewed. What does the author of a letter have when he writes a personal letter to somebody that he does not expect to be seen by the public? Is he telling absolute truth because it's only personal between two people? Or is he carving the contents of the letter to suit the needs of the person who wrote to him first? <clears throat> and since we don't really know, we have to really very carefully weigh the truth content of that particular letter could be that he wants to write truthfully and that the <clears throat> because this letter is not going to be seen he thinks by anybody therefore my truest feelings my emotions come pouring out or on the other hand it could be the opposite I'm only writing to you I could only write a, le- a letter that's tailored to your needs and my truest thoughts are not to be expressed when I write publicly then I want truth to come out essentially the question is where and when does an author reveal his most hidden innermost thoughts privately or publicly now, there's no easy answer to this question. Obviously, there are certain authors who will write publicly what they really believe. Others authors will hide their truest thoughts from the public and only write privately what they really believe, depending upon what factor do you think. What factor do you think will make a person write publicly or privately in one way or another? Who they're talking to. Okay, that's one factor. Who they're talking to. Or the topic. Good. Some things I want to be private about, some things I want to be public about. Or the fear, fear of reprisals. The history of Jewish thinking, and this is true of Islamic and Christian thinking as well, is that you could not always publicly say what you really believe. Obvious point. Galileo could not say what he believed about the sun and the earth configurations, because when he did, he was viewed as a heretic. Sorry, and he said it had to recant it. He did absolutely recant. Why? Because, okay, but it could have been much worse than that. And that's true of the history of all thinkers who's, there are times when he's, there's a fear of persecution. So topic plays a role, to whom you're writing plays a role. So now, <clears throat> persecution mandates that we write in a certain framework or a certain style or a certain way. When you're concerned with persecution. If I'm writing to you about the weather, nobody's gonna, going to persecute me, prosecute me for the weather, one way or the other. There's no persecution on the weather, good. If I'm writing to you about change of governments, Imagine if you are a CIA agent writing to your person in Iraq about changing the government. You're going to be writing about the weather, obviously, and not write about change of governments. But really, when you write the sun is shining, there might be a secret message in that very innocent letter. So topic plays a role, to whom writing plays a role, and the concern you have for persecution. There's an important book that we've discussed before called Persecution on the Art of Writing. How do you write when you have a fear of persecution? Right. What do you do? How do you hide your message? Harambam Maimonides, who was very concerned about persecution, is somebody that developed a fine, the fine art of persecution in the art of writing. And you see, and he tells you, it, he tells you, I'm going to write over here, <clears throat> I'm going to tell you, here that I'm going to write in a very cryptic style. I'm not going to tell you my true full thoughts, but if you're smart and wise, you'll be able to connect chapters and words, a word over here and a word over there, three chapters down, it was going to give you the truth of my writings. That's in Moreno Nebuchim in the Guide to the Perplexed. But what about his letters? Was he honest, was he truthful in his letters or not? Is a very important question and it depends upon exactly to whom he's writing, what his topic was. 
and the, and the consequences of being revealed. If there's no consequences of being revealed, then you might, you'll write truth. But if there are consequences when you write, then you have to be very careful about what you write itself. Now, it's interesting because to show you what a, to what degree that issue is prominent is that in our own community over here, there have been rabbis who have been attacked for the written word. Rabbi Shama, Rabbi Towel, because they wrote something, now you can be attacked because it's on paper. You can't deny it, you can't take it out of context, etc. When you speak it, I could speak things that are much more radically uh, out of the pale of certain people's perspectives and not be concerned about it, because I could always deny it. Except that's not on tape. It's on tape. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's the bane of our existence, these tapes. Right, good point. But I never would, of course, say anything that's out of the pale. That goes without saying. <clears throat> And that's certainly an issue. So one has to be very careful about the written word. The spoken word can say it's out of context, you don't know what I mean. And you could always shape and reshape your spoken word. The written word is in stone. And that's the sad part of this, that yeah, there's a fear of writing in this community that certain rabbis cannot write what they really want to say because they're afri- afraid. This is a relatively tolerant America, in a relatively tolerant Syrian community, there's a fear of writing what they, could, what they want to write, and they've written it anyway. But there's a fear of reprisals, there's a fear of sanctions. It's astounding how in this relatively tolerant community <clears throat> there still is this issue. All the more so a thousand years ago when the Rambam was writing, there was fear of persecution and therefore he wrote cryptically. So good. That's important for us to be aware. Now, we had seen a few of the letters of the private, in quote, letters of Harambam. For example, his letter to Ovadjah the Ger. There was a very famous person whose name was Ovadjah. He was a convert. And Harambam wrote to him about the process of conversion. Now, interesting, that if you were to write about conversion in the Syrian community today, you would write it very, very cryptically. You wouldn't say your true thoughts. Harambam then could say his true thoughts because conversion was an acceptable mode of cross crossing the lines from one people to another, from one religion to another. People did it. So when you write to the Ger, you could write openly about your really feelings about Gerut, about conversion. Today, no rabbi would even speak about it, no rabbi would even write about it, certainly not because you're concerned about the repercussions. But the Ramam presumably wrote his true feelings about Gerut in that particular context. Well, he wrote his letter to Hakmelunel. Now we're dealing with another issue. To whom is important? The context is important. Because there he's writing to rabbis that he doesn't really know, Two or three thousand miles away on the European continent, and he's writing to them about about ideas of philosophy and metaphysics that they never heard about, and they're saying to him, "We heard there's something great what you wrote about. What is it? Should he be truthful about it or not be truthful about it? We don't know. Is this going to be something which is going to turn them away and attack from what I'm talking about and attack me, or they're going to jump on board? So how do you write?" very subtly and very carefully. You cover your bases till you're sure who your students actually are. If you don't know who your students are, when you're writing God, you know who's going to read them. Because he wrote to Hamelunel. Who's he writing to? He doesn't know. Could be one person there wrote the letter to him, I love what you wrote about Munayda Bukhim, I want to know more about these topics. Interesting. But who else are you sharing this? Who's your bad dean? And it could be, try- and that did, of, co- of course that occurred as well. Trying to lure him in to exposing. People do that all the time. Entrapment. He wrote a letter. He wrote a letter to the Pinchas from Alexandria. Each of these letters has different folks, different intent. There's much information that you can glean from them. You can learn a lot from Harambam what his thoughts were, but it has to be very carefully, very carefully balanced when you talk about a private communication. 
we had seen one jarring statement in the last letter that we had read to Achmed Lunel a few months ago, which was about the centrality of Torah versus other intellectual disciplines. In that particular letter, Harambam is saying, really, Torah was supposed to be central, but really what happened, the other cooks, the maids, the, uh, <coughs> the servants, the bakers, took center. I was mad to Torah, and all of a sudden, all those attending came along, and they took center stage, and I know what happened to me. Wow, that's what I'm saying over here in that particular context, that Torah was taken over, and that these, and it was a mistake. Now people will look to that paragraph, those four lines, and say, see, the Ram said his whole life was a whole mistake. All his philosophy, and all his metaphysics, everything else that he taught was a mistake, because they took over, they should have taken over. So my mom is saying at that point in time, I have sinned, transgressed, because I allowed the attendees, the servants, to take center stage, rather than the Torah itself. Now, that's really a jarring statement. Those who see the Rambam as this great intellectual, who sees truth as an absolute, who wants truth as an absolute, how do we evaluate that? So what we did is we looked at other sources. We looked at Shemona Pirakim, which has the very famous, most powerful, perhaps, five words in all of Jewish literature. Say that again, because you didn't believe me. The most powerful five words in all of Jewish literature is Shema Haemet Mimi Shamara. Four words. Listen to the truth from whatever source. Whatever, wherever you come from. Philosophy, astronomy, wherever it be. Ramam's position on this was clear. Listen to the truth of the right source. So that seems to be qualifying <coughs> what the Rambam is saying regarding the other disciplines in Ha'atuach Melunel. Look at Murein Abulchim. Two or three different chapters over there about the relative merit or non-merit of the metaphysics and the philosophical studies that he engaged in. Okay, good. So we try to come to some kind of conclusion, although it's difficult because that statement is still glaring. But was it only a foil? Foil, F-O-I-L. What do you mean by a foil? He's right to Achmelunel. Doesn't really know who they are. He's not really sure what angle to take over here. So he wrote the traditional kind of non-assailable statement. He wrote it, straightforward. And we question, see, I wrote it over here. And it's clear. And then he may want to have qualified that later on. We don't know. What's the truth content of that one four-line statement, which we had seen and analyzed, is certainly a matter of great speculation. And it has to be come back to, we should think about it again, and try to figure out what the Ramam's intent was writing those four lines. Very significant four lines, because it's how you read the Rambam. Did he recant? There is a uh, interesting uh, Midrash legend that Darwin recounted all about evolution in the last days of his life. Darwin. Tell me Midrash, don't worry, Harvey. <laughs> that and it and they, that he was visited by a priest and the priest said, "Do you recant?" And he recanted all that he said. Now, Darwin may have said the words. Look at the subtlety. But he didn't mean that. Didn't mean that he mean they meant the words. He might have meant to you, priest. I recant. Fine, but I really hold by what I said. And it's a private communication between the priest and he. Why would he do that? He wants to be buried in a Christian cemetery. Doesn't want. Didn't want his family to be suffer the after effects of his Darwinian revolution. There could be me- multiple reasons that he recanted, in quotes. On the other hand, maybe he really did. Maybe he really wasn't sure. We don't really know. We don't know at the end, the very last one of what he really hold. Did he really hold that he believed, he believed in God, of course, and that actually God accepts my truth, even if it's flawed truth, even if I were wrong about this, because I tried to find truth. To whom? To me? To you? No, to the world at large. His writings and his findings still stand, even if he recants them. Well, it depends upon... Anybody can read them and come to their own conclusions on them. 
Okay, good. But deathbed confessions uh, are very powerful. Correct, correct. Christian community might have mattered. Correct. For science. Correct. That's a whole different story, right. Unless, unless, unless he says it's part of his deathbed confession, it's what it's called deathbed confession, at the end he says, I, I found absolutely that I was wrong. And I didn't have a chance to write, I'm just making this up, I didn't have a chance to write it up, but really I was wrong. So again, you have to evaluate that. I didn't have a chance to write it up, but I want, I want the world to know that I was wrong about this particular theory that I had speculated about. So who knows? We don't know. And there, again, in, in reading some of the accounts of his life, and this book recently came out, which the reviewer makes this point, <clears throat> that there are those who will take this as absolute truth. The death of conscience will say that now it's only a joke and that something didn't, didn't even happen, some will say. It didn't even happen that way. So how to evaluate that is a, certainly a very significant and very important issue. So too with Haram Bam, how to evaluate the statement. The way they do it scientifically today is, like Einstein comes up with a the theory, somebody else comes up and says the same thing. Of course. Who's genuine? They check the math. If the math holds, they say, yeah, he discovered it. The math, his math doesn't hold. However, uh, so this is however to your statement. One second. However. So if he recants, you will check. If his theory does fall apart, you can say, yes, his recanting may have been very, he may have discovered Agreed. that flow. Agreed. But if no one discovered the flow yet. Correct. Or Good. no new flows were discovered. Right. Science whatever works. Was there, whatever was there is still the same. Right. Then you can say his recanting is emotional. Nothing, nothing agreed, agreed, agreed. However, the only flaw in your argument is today's New York Times. Today's New York Times has an article in the Sunday in the uh, magazine section, written by a um, physicist, Paul, something, who just won a MacArthur, which is a genius fellowship, right? I think you're hundred thousand dollars for life or something every single year, a genius fellowship. And it was discovered on the day that he was ordered MacArthur. This scientist at Bell Labs, named Schoen, S-H-O-E-N, some German scientist, had falsified his data. And they asked, they interviewed this guy, Paul, to comment on the notion that the same day, is that, is that coincidental, that you won your MacArthur for your work in physics, and this guy was proven to be false. So what's your opinion about that? So he went on, you know, it's an interesting article, only a page, a page and a half, about how science self-corrects, and why to get away with it at Bell Labs, one of the premier research laboratories in the world get away with it for two and three and four years. And how about his co-authors? How come they got away with it? What happened to me? Where did it break down the system? It should not have been. So you're absolutely right, of course, that at the end of the day, we find our mistakes. It was a scam four, five, six, seven years ago with a guy named Baltimore from uh, Johns Hopkins. There was David Baltimore, who again, falsified data, something to that effect. Yes. I think it was Baltimore's name was, who falsified data in the biomedical fields <clears throat> And again, does it always come out? These things are so complex. So the guy Paul says, I check every one of my equations. Not my great, I do all the work. Where do you put your emphasis on making sure that every 2 plus 2 is 4? Or do you want to end up doing more advanced research? It depends upon how good a scientist you are. Do I check every one of my footnotes in my thesis? The answer is yes, I do. <laughs> I do. But that's why it's 20 years later and I haven't finished it. But some people will not do this. Some people will just say, okay, just graduate student, check this, 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 this is my idea, and work it out, and come to your conclusions. And then you go over it, of course. So there are flaws in the system, but essentially you're right. Essentially you're correct. That eventually, <clears throat> peer review is what determines the truth or falsity of that particular theory, equation, whatever it may be. Good. But coming back to over here, in Harambam, it's more subtle. It's more elusive, because we have a whole genre of writings of Harambam, which says, contrary to what he says in his letter, which was written late, relatively late in his life, in the 1180s, Achmelunel. 
So we have to analyze it. And do you see this as a final deathbed confession? Or it seems in the context of all of his writings. I understand how much that, that particular statement, I think you brought that summer. Yeah, yeah. It's like this. Uh, there is a car, which is the Torah itself, mm-hmm. and there is other matters which you consider very relevant if you want to ever appreciate what Hashem is about. But that's like some Dabar She'en Lo So how much you're going to go into there and, and, and leave the, the classical material? What if there's app? And that, that is a judgment call now. Okay. Okay. And it depends on the person. Some person can spend a lot of time looking at, at beauty and not appreciate it. Therefore, don't spend any more time. It could be relative. I agree. All that you're saying. No question. That's one way of viewing this particular issue. Although it's still jarring in that <coughs> means wherever you're going to find abs- wherever you're going to find absolute truth. In three fifty-one, you don't f- you find absolute truth in metaphysics. Not in the way the Surah presents Hakadosh Baruch Hu. The presents Hakadosh Baruch Hu as a uh, anthropomorphic, anthropopathic being. So Surah presents Hashem differently than absolute metaphysical truth. So I find truth, absolute truth, in Aristotle's metaphysics or in the Torah, which doesn't, doesn't, doesn't equate. It's not the same. So that's the question. If Surah is Ikar and the other thing is, is this tangential, then but where's truth? Hanabam clearly viewed that Aristotle had truth. It's truth, but it's relevant. Very relevant. Relevant to. How much time do you need to spend on this table? If it's. That's the common question. That's, I think that's what the argument, the argument Okay, okay. We, again, we have to analyze it again and see where we want to go with this. Maybe your interpretation is correct. There's a clue in astronomy, but uh, beyond a certain point, you want to use it to shake a shame. Okay, after that, it gets into curiosity. Like you're doing correct, of okay. Physics, <coughs> and, and, it's, uh, and then beyond that, it's more curiosity and what's beyond it. Okay, could it's be. It's not helping anymore than selling appreciation. Maybe it is. I, I would think it is. Person. I think it is. It depends upon the person. I think it is. But that's a nice way of kind of explaining what Haramban means over there. But I'm not sure if it's the only way of explaining it. I'm not sure if he didn't have another agenda. Maybe agenda to them, maybe it's what he really believed. Something has to be analyzed more so. Depending on the author, if you want him to be receptive, exactly. you have to downplay what he doesn't like. Exactly. That's my point. Correct. Yeah. Depends about to whom you're writing. You have to downplay what he doesn't like. Exactly. Okay, good. That might be one of the calculations you make. So that's the nature of letter writing. What I write to you is what I'm not, what I'm not going to write to another person. What I write to you was directly, directly written only to you, for you at this moment, psychologically and spiritually. I might write differently on another occasion. Every letter has to be analyzed, seen from various perspectives, with the hope of making some kind of sense as to what the author really intended. Now, all of that is true in terms of the closed letters of the Rambam. We're going to start studying now an open letter of the Rambam. Right? Here, none of the questions or the above ambiguities will plague us. Here the Ram's intent is very, very clear. But, I'm being overly subtle now. Because is it not so, is it not the case, that when you write an open letter, there's a flip side to that. Correct. Okay, so you have to be very careful. It's a letter. It's a letter that was written to a certain community who were undergoing a certain phenomenon which we'll describe in a few minutes. Now, is he writing polemically, exaggeratedly? Is he writing in order to make <coughs> a contextual point? Example given. Last night, we had heard a Torah, those who were here, from Stephen Zagger, which was very well received, about the Re'em. This kind of beast that survived the flood of Noah. 
so huge, so large, its head was the size of three football fields. That's what he's describing from the Midrash. Huge, unbelievable. How did he survive? How did it not capsize up the mountains? And he quoted other places where the Am appears. What really is the Am? And he, by the way, has a degree in zoology from university. So he found it particularly interesting, the, the animals of, of Torah. So the Am, it's not Peshat, it's Midrash. Now, he doesn't really know about the mechanics and dynamics of Midrash. But describing what the Midrash is about the Am, and how it survived, etc., and Ogma Bashan, all that. Very interesting. At the end, he had a very nice point to make about um, the outside world, and the Teva was safe and secure. Synagogue is like a Teva, it's safe and secure, outside world is dangerous. How to, you know, to survive outside, as the Am survived outside, with having an attachment to the Teva. The Am was not able to float on the Teva because the Teva was only so big, it was to have a football field, and the Am was three times, his head was three times the size of that. Good. So what was my question? You heard it. What was my question when he was thinking, when he was speaking? I don't want to know what your question was. I don't know what my question was. What was my question? Hmm? No, I didn't ask the question. What was I thinking? I want you to know, what was I thinking? I didn't say anything. I wasn't going to say anything. But what was I thinking? It was the Torah. Very nice. It was nice. We accepted it. It was good. What was my issue? Okay, good. What's the purpose of Midrash? Or what were the rabbis thinking when they spoke about the M in this fashion? The rabbis are writing about the M. <clears throat> we don't believe that the M was three head was three times the size of a football field, right? That's three hundred yards is the head. I mean, bigger than dinosaurs. I mean, way bigger than anything we could have known. He said this is the biggest animal. Here. What were the rabbis writing? What was their intent? What were they thinking about? What's the the purpose of that particular stem by the rabbis? I'm not going to accept that at face value or literally true that it really was the case, or the rabbis really believe that was the case, right? So it's a single horned animal, it was a unicorn, rhinoceros, what well, it was, but huge. Could you imagine an animal three times the size of a football field? I mean, we've all seen the dinosaurs at the Museum of Natural History. It's impressive, okay, but it's nothing to sneeze at, but I can deal with it. But three times the size of a football field, you're talking about 900 feet. That's from here to Deal Road. I mean, here to, uh, to Route 35, I mean, more or less. Can you imagine an animal that big? I mean, is it possible? Pushing away mountains and all that? <clears throat> what were the rabbis thinking? What was their intent of that midrash? Did they mean it to be understood literally? Or did they mean something else by it? So I'm going to say that they meant something else by it. And you have to understand, what, were the, what was the culture like? What were people reading about then? Was the point of it to say how great Hashem is? That even the am, the so-called mythological am, God could easily slay and rule over? Was it an attempt to build Hashem up by virtue of the framework of reference of the people, which is the am, mythological monsters? Okay, we have to analyze what the intent was. But an open writing like that could be very dangerous. Yeah. Your answer is that big? Why would you think? You must come from West Long Branch. I don't know. Or someplace like that. No, no, so that's a... Because now, now you want to try to, to, to deal with the problem. So symbolic interpretations always works nicely. Okay, I could buy that. But you have to give me a more cultural context to that. You can you say maybe it meant that? Culturally they may have been exposed, let's say, or internally or externally, either way, to the fear of the great force and power of Tzara. So maybe you're right. Now, I could create a scenario where what you're saying could be correct, but I don't know if it's true or not. I have to go back to the time of Chazal, 2,000 years ago, and raise these questions and say, what was their intent? What was their culture and ambience? What were the people reading? What were the people hearing? They might have heard a storyteller come along and tell about the great 
monsters that dominated pre-creation, the Tanina Gedolin, and how big and how powerful it was, strong as that, and the rabbis said, yeah, you're right, but God's stronger than that. So there might have been all kinds of cultural contexts out of which this particular Midrash grew, which we want to understand. But again, the public writings of the rabbis may have had an intent to impress the people who were listening to their sermon at that moment, they didn't mean it for it to be spoken as literal truth 2,000 years later at Sudashit to Magen David. I think, right? 